0: 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Our
1: world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Most of us grew up with the story of Benjamin Franklin and his kite. It's that stereotypical Eureka moment, practically an American legend at this point. Franklin tied a key to the kite and let the whole contraption fly up into the stormy sky. The string was wet with rain, the key was made of metal, and the lightning? Well, it sent some sparks and a tingle down to Franklin's hand. It's a lovely story. It might very well be true. If the modern world has a beating heart, we might be able to point to electricity as the force that powers it. After Benjamin Franklin's experiment, the wheels of science spun quickly. Luigi Galvani experimented with the power of electricity to cause dead bodies to twitch. Alessandro Volta, one of Galvani's competitors, invented the voltaic pile in 1800, which was essentially a battery. 20 years later, Michael Faraday invented the electric motor, and in the decades that followed, those same forces powered the invention of the telephone, the light bulb, and eventually the modern personal computer. It's shocking, I know, but we owe a lot of thanks to electricity. Still, it isn't a complex or challenging technology when you boil it down to its basic elements. Back in 1978, a German named Arne Egbrecht managed to prove just that. He built a battery out of nothing more than a small jar a copper tube and an iron rod. When filled with an acidic liquid like vinegar or lemon juice, the copper and iron react to produce an electric current. Like I said, it's pretty simple, with very few ingredients. It wasn't his idea, though. Egbrecht had an earlier example to follow. Not something built by Galvani or even Volta. Not something drawn up by Franklin or Thomas Edison. No, his template was much older and came from a land far, far away from Europe and America. It was a battery discovered in Iraq from a time well outside our modern expectations over 2,000 years ago.
0: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other
1: start living yours. Let's get into it. He was a philosopher by trade, which gave him the tools he needed to be an extraordinary social reformer. Jeremy Bentham was born in London in 1748 and graduated with his master's from the Queen's College, Oxford, at the young age of just 18, and he seems like a progressive personality born well ahead of his time. Bentham was an advocate for the separation of church and state, for equal rights for women, and for the abolition of slavery. He fought to put an end to corporal punishment and the death penalty, and called for the fair treatment of animals. And on top of all of that, he's considered one of the spiritual founders of University College London, and is still remembered fondly there today. He also lived in an age when it was difficult to find enough corpses for medical study. Back then, only executed criminals were acceptable subjects for dissection by medical students. Unless, of course, a generous individual chose to donate their body willingly, which, at the age of 21, is exactly what Bentham promised to do. He lived a long and fruitful life after that, don't worry. He made contributions to the fields of economics, legal reform, gender studies, and he also published extensively. But I think you get it. Bentham was a smart guy who did a lot of great things. A lot of people still look back with respect and admiration for what he accomplished. Got it? Good. Because then he died. People saw it coming, of course. He was 84 when it happened, which was impressive for the 1830s. But in the month prior to his death, he set about putting two connected projects into action. The first was the donation of his body to science that he had promised over 60 years before. And sure enough, two days after his death, a group of friends and students gathered to watch Dr. Thomas Southward Smith conduct the procedure. Afterward, Bentham's skeleton was preserved and set aside for the next step. Except his head. With flesh and hair and teeth all intact and untouched, Smith used a procedure to mummify Bentham's head and freeze the decay. But something went wrong, and the dead man's head was left a bit too dark and taut for most people's tastes. In the end, they were forced to make a wax replica. When they were ready, they brought all of Bentham's parts over to his second project, a cabinet. It had been built prior to his death and set aside for this very moment. It's a large wooden display case that sort of resembles a really nice phone booth, complete with doors that open and lovely dark paneling inside. And it's big enough for a grown man to sit inside comfortably. One of Bentham's favorite chairs was placed inside the cabinet, and then his skeleton was dressed in his own clothing. They stuffed hay inside it to flesh it out, so to speak, and then sat the whole thing down in the chair, with that wax head on top. They even added his walking cane, for good measure. His real head caused a lot more trouble than people expected, if you'd care to know. Other than the fact that it's just a bit too gruesome to look at, it's also been stolen a few times by university students. These days, it's locked away and safely out of sight, and out of reach as well. All these years later, you can still visit Jeremy Bentham. His wooden cabinet is typically on display in the main building of the University College London. Although, on rare occasions, his body has been removed from its cabinet so that he can sit in on important gatherings of the College Council. They even record his presence in the meeting minutes. His status? Present, but not voting.